The California Technology Council's new CTC Benefits Trust combines groups of emerging technology companies to offer large company benefits to small businesses. This approach delivers employee benefit programs with better choices and at a lower cost. What's included? Medical, dental, and vision options are available with additional employer and employee online resources to support simplified enrollment and administration. To learn more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash join. That's californiatechnology.org forward slash join. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Much has been made about a cancer moonshot, but in the world of oncology, rocket fuel is rarely a topic of conversation except maybe as a metaphor. Epicentrics, though, is looking to rocket fuel as a source for its lead experimental therapy, RRX001. It believes this high-energy molecule, derived from rocket fuel, has the potential to improve immunotherapies and radiotherapies, as well as having anti-cancer activity on its own. We spoke to Corey Carter, president and CEO of Epicentrics, about how RRX001 came about, how it works, and the company's oncolytic viral pipeline also in development. Corey, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. We're going to talk about Epicentrics immunotherapies, and the unusual story behind your lead experimental candidate. Perhaps we can start with immunotherapies broadly. What makes these such an exciting area of cancer therapies these days, and what have been the limitations? Um, Absolutely. So um, I think immunotherapy is very exciting. Um, As a medical oncologist, which I was uh, previously before taking on this uh, role, uh, was treating thing, uh, patients, and I found uh, over and over again that there was no ability to get long-term survival. Um, about seven years ago is when immunotherapy started coming into the ability to enhance the immune system to potentially treat cancer. It turns out that it does actually work, um, and with the help of uh, drugs that are antibodies that are called checkpoint inhibitors, we've seen a dramatic result in specific tumors, but there's specific tumors that lend themselves to be uh, very much controlled by the immune system. Uh, we've gone from uh, the ability to treat uh, metastatic melanoma, the ability to treat non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, in several of these patients, they're getting really good responses and having their immune system be able to control the disease, sometimes eliminate the cancer, but usually be able to control the disease and be able to have these patients live extended lives. So it's been a remarkable thing. And when I was treating uh, non-small cell lung cancer in the clinic, uh, I would see all my patients uh, tend to pass away in, in right around that 8 to 12-month 
uh, time frame with the in invention of checkpoint inhibitors, all of a sudden about 20% of those patients suddenly started living long. And I have patients now that are out seven, eight years and have no evidence of cancer or have the same amount of cancer but are being controlled on these checkpoint inhibitors. So it's really been a remarkable uh, feat that we've come up with these. We've been able to enhance the immune system. And that enhancement of the immune system has really extended people's lives. Unfortunately, the limitation is really is what do you do in a non-small cell lung cancer to the rest of the 80%? And is that 80% achievable? And can the immune system somehow have the ability to control that? Your lead therapeutic candidate is RRX001. You're looking at this both to enhance immunotherapies as well as radiotherapies. Let's start with RRX001, which is a dinotrizetidine derivative. Did I say that correctly? Very close, yeah. <laughs> okay, I'll take that. This represents a, a new class of anti-cancer agents. This is a rocket fuel derivative. How did it rocket is. fuel come to be recognized as a, a potential anti-cancer therapy? Uh, well, I think it's it's really neat how this uh, actually occurred. Is uh, one, some of the investors uh, that were in the space of trying to develop new drugs, really were trying to think about where can we develop new drugs. And uh, you probably have heard of people talking about going to the rainforest and uh, even some of the recent thing is people going to the sea and trying to find different areas to come up with new chemicals instead of being the same old thing, which we know may or may not work, but in the vast majority of time doesn't work. So they were really trying to look at this, and they were talking to many people, and there was uh, a person by the name of Mark Bonarski who had colon cancer, who was a radiation oncologist, and was really looking at, is there any way that he could help uh, get treat his own cancer? Um, he runs into uh, a person uh, actually on a ski lift in Utah. Uh, they're going skiing, and they just happens to sit next to a rocket scientist. And that rocket scientist, they start talking back and forth. The next thing you know, they're talking about the properties of rocket fuel and how they potentially could enhance radiation. Now, that seems like a far-fetched idea, and I think their initial ideas were extremely far-fetched. But it turns out enough of these people knew each other, and they started to develop more and more ideas and said, look, we can probably develop some drugs that would enhance radiation increase the side effects or the side effects to the tumor of radiation and could we go forward and develop a molecule by that uh, this took several years but they eventually came upon the first uh, molecule which we call rx001 which is actually a derivative of tnas which is the replacement of dynamite and so this is a relatively simple structure but is able to replace it uh, with the bromine group on this and this is something that donates nitric oxide readily in high quantities and really does enhance the activity of radiation. One of the things that's interesting about this is that as a consequence of being used in rocket fuel, the safety of the molecule has been well studied. Can, can you explain why that is and what's known about the safety of the molecule? Yeah, I, I think it's been very interesting, and, and I, as a clinician, was... Uh, using this drug in clinical trials, and it really motivated me to come on because it was so unique in its safety properties as well as its activity. So um, what happens is, is this molecule actually likes to bind to sulfide groups, 
in particular, uh, if it was in the bloodstream, if you had a, a high uh, amount of glutathione, it would bind to that. And then it also likes to bind to hemoglobin. And it's actually the cysteine residue on hemoglobin. And this will actually bind immediately to that. And it's extremely interesting because when they first tried to study this thing, no one could find it once it entered the bloodstream. And the reason why is because it was being bound up, and particularly bound up by hemoglobin or in the red blood cells. So what actually happens is once this is bound up in this area, and it does release nitric oxide initially when it's bound, um, that is actually co-opted. And our drug co-ops the red blood cell and travels throughout the system. The way this works and the way uh, it changes the structure of the red blood cell is it makes it really sticky and it really sticky to areas that have low oxygen or hypoxic areas. And tumors always have hypoxic areas of low oxygen areas. And this is where this red blood cell likes to be taken up. It turns out it's taken up and it's actually taken out of circulation very readily by a very primitive immune uh, cell, which is called a macrophage. And that macrophage will actually take up that and clear that red blood cell. And that drug itself and its actinomyabotites are released within the macrophage as well as in the surrounding microenvironment of the tumor. And this really is the ability to change around and have the immune system go back in and attack the tumor. One of the things that tumors are known to do is actually recruit these macrophages and change them into a protective layer. And it's one of the main reasons why chemotherapy stops working in a tumor, and it's also some of the main reasons why certain oral drugs, uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitors, stop working in tumors. And so if we're able to change around the outside of the macrophage of the tumor and turn them into an active macrophage or something that doesn't like the tumor, then we're able to enhance the immune system in that way. As I understand it, one of the characteristics that makes this attractive both as rocket fuel and cancer is that these are energetic molecules. Can you explain that? Yeah, so it is a it is an energetic molecule or a highly energetic molecule, what they, they talk about it. But what it's released, it starts releasing uh, something that, you know, normal normal vessels do like, and it's nitric oxide. And that nitric oxide goes on to produce continuous oxidative stress. So it, it generates nitric oxygen species and that those nitrogen and oxygen species that are, are highly uh, oxidative actually are sitting there and attacking the tumor. The reason why we have such a good safety profile and because it's not actually having these things released anywhere else is because it tends to only get released in the hypoxic areas. So selecting patients with cancer and treating patients with cancer really does have a direct effect on the tumor. And what we have seen is an extremely safe profile on patients. And in general, patients actually feel better when they get the drug, which is always something nice to report when you're uh, treating a patient with cancer, when they feel better on, on a treatment. The end product is fairly stable, but the challenge is, one of the challenges is manufacturing this because you are dealing with something in its earlier forms yeah. That is highly explosive, I take it. What's the manufacturing challenge you face? Yeah, so we, we really looked at uh, uh, manufacturers, and uh, we tried to find uh, as many manufacturers as we could to compete to try to figure out the chemistry on this and be able to do it safely. Uh, and it turned out that the manufacturers only who were used to developing highly energetic molecules were able to actually feel comfortable enough producing it 
making sure that they could manage the intermediates and making sure that they could do it safely. We were able to find three manufacturers in the world who felt really comfortable and had a high, uh, you know, ability to actually manufacture this. It turns out that uh, these are, are people who, who are used to producing highly energetic molecules, people who have produced TNT, people who have uh, produced nitric oxide, and people who have actually produced uh, jet fuel have, who have taken some of their ability to make these uh, chemistry changes in manufacturing and switched them over into the pharmaceutical industries. And so we were able to find three, and, and it, is become a, it is a challenge to manufacture it, but once it is manufactured, this thing is not explosive. It does not uh, uh, generate any extra highly energetic uh, material. It's very, very safe to handle, and it's just a matter of taking it from the starting material and getting it into the, the, the form that we like to, that we like to call ABD-NAS or RRX-001. You talked about how this can enhance immunotherapies. What does it do with radiotherapies? So what we've seen with the radiotherapy is this really uh, high level of generation of, ox of reactive oxygen and reactive nitrogen species. So one of the main ways radiation works is by enhancing these oxidative stresses and really creating more and more of these reactive oxygen reactive nitrogen species. When you give this drug, it actually enhances that, and that's why we've seen uh, a, actually a synergistic approach with uh, radiation. Uh, we have data right now on uh, whole brain radiation where we've enhanced uh, the radiation uh, doing this, and we have tumors that were normally thought to be resistant to radiation therapy, such as melanoma, which we're getting a high level of response rate. And then we're getting ready to release data shortly here on uh, upfront therapy using our drug with GVM. What indications are you looking at, and are you considering using this as a single agent in any indications? Yeah, we have looked at that in our development uh, pathway uh, for a single agent. Uh, we find in these neuroendocrine tumors, uh, we do have a high degree of activity, uh, so much so that the FDA has actually granted us with orphan drug status. Uh, as in we have positive preclinical and clinical data uh, using this upfront as monotherapy or in the second line. Um, and so we'll continue to develop it that way. Uh, right now, we've, we've found our best data to date, and we, as we've presented this with the FDA, and a very higher, high uh, disease of need, which is small cell lung cancer. And what we're, what we're finding is, is we really are able to reduce the resistance to chemotherapy. So we're giving this in sequence with chemotherapy. We have started to uh, develop this with the checkpoint inhibitors and really looked at some of those patients who are resistant to the checkpoint inhibitors. And again, we will give this in sequence where we'll activate the macrophages and then we'll follow it in with the checkpoint inhibitor and see what we're, we're going to do. And then as you pointed out, it does work with radiation. And so we found that giving this with radiation is also an area that we'd like to continue to develop. And that's why we're doing it with whole brain as well as in uh, the primary brain cancer of GBM. Overall, from the clinical studies to date, what, what do you know about its safety and efficacy? So the efficacy is showing that uh, people are uh, definitely living longer in small cell lung cancer. And uh, these are initial trials uh, in phase two setting. And that phase two setting has been presented to the FDA. 
and the FDA has, has agreed to an approval trial. So we're getting ready to start the approval trial in small cell lung cancer. That will be our first indication of going forward. Uh, we have phase two data uh, that is pretty powerful in colorectal cancer and we'll be uh, actually starting a trial hopefully uh, beginning of next year in colorectal cancer. And uh, our GBM uh, or upfront primary brain cancer which really enhances both the radiation as well as the chemotherapy. Uh, we hope to report on that out uh, at towards the fall. Uh, our first presentation on that will be at the Society of Neuro-Oncology. Uh, we've just got accepted for a late-breaking abstract on that, uh, and we are very excited about that because it really does take everything about the molecule and enhance it. Uh, we're very hopeful that there will be that this data will be strong enough that when we present it to the FDA, that they'll agree for us to go into another approval trial in primary brain cancer. You're also developing personalized cancer vaccines. Can you explain your approach? How do you go about treating a patient? Yeah, so uh, the personalized cancer uh, vaccine or virus therapy uh, is something that uh, we're really excited about. Um, our chief scientific officer. Uh, is Dr. Tony Reed, uh, who comes out of Stanford and is now practicing at UCSD. He has really dedicated his life and over 25 years uh, in studying cancer, viruses, flash vaccines. Um, he has been in some early companies, uh, such as Onyx, uh, which uh, was able to get approval in China but did not get approval in the U.S., and has really learned from that. And he understands that uh, probably one of the most important things about a cancer vaccine or virus is its ability to replicate and its ability to replicate quickly in the cancer as well as being safe. So uh, what we've started to do is, is take cancers that we know and understand the mutations and see if we can enhance the mutations in that cancer and express the mutations in that cancer through a virus and let those expression levels to go much higher than previously expressed and to be able to attract the immune system to attract it against the cancer. Uh, we've treated two patients. Uh, first patient tolerated it very well uh, and actually got uh, an injection in his hip and the subcutaneous tissue and had ended up having stable disease uh, and then decided after about three months to go on to a different therapy. Our second patient that we treated uh, was resistant to both uh, chemotherapy as well as dual checkpoint inhibitors, and that's uh, anti-PD-1 and the anti-CDLA for antibodies, and really had a last-ditch effort and, and kind of called us up and asked us if we could create a, va a vaccine for him. We created a vaccine for him uh, and started to inject his tumor in the actual uh, tumor itself, and we did it every two weeks. Uh, and just followed him. And initially, his cancer uh, stabilized or slightly grew. And then over time, it started to shrink down. And not only the cancer that we were injecting, as well as cancers that are located uh, adjacent to it or other parts of its body, started to shrink down. And so he actually completed an entire year of therapy on the vaccine, getting an injection every two weeks. And we only manufactured enough for a year, and so he's just completed his, his year of therapy. He's in observation right now, which will continue to follow him. And we have plans of manufacturing another year of therapy for him if, if he needs it. And what's the case for this therapeutic approach? Who do you think would be the best-suited patients for it? 
So we're going to develop this in a, in a couple ways. Uh, one, uh, we understand about the immune system and potentially one of this, uh, if we go back to the 80% of patients that don't respond, a lot of those patients are overproducing a protein called TGF-beta. So we're going to develop it in a way where we have a TGF-beta trap, and that way we're going to try to develop an actual drug that can be applied to a wide variety of tumors and in tumors that overexpress TGF-beta. The other way we're going to try to develop this is in the personalized approach and understanding that each patient has its own unique set of mutations, its own unique immune system, and seeing if we can understand how to enhance that cancer to be able to be detected by the immune system and have the immune system go turn back on that cancer and attack it. We might not be able to cure everybody, but we should be able to control a lot more cancers. So we're developing in two approaches, and one is we, we want to be able to develop uh, at least a vaccine or a virus that we can apply widely uh, to many different patients, but we also want to take in the, the fact that every patient is unique and we should try our best to treat every patient and understand that there's value in treating each individual patient. You have a, a growing clinical pipeline here. How are you funded and, and are you looking at partnerships or are you planning to commercialize this on your own? Um, we, we, we're developing a core set of people. Uh, we've been uh, developing, even though the company's been around for about 10 years, it was a very much uh, uh, a company that was really trying to get the right people in the company as well as develop a pipeline. Uh, now that we have a pipeline that we think is very, uh, that we're both very comfortable with uh, as far as the leadership within the company, we're going to be using small molecules that enhance the immune system as well as this virus and vaccine. So uh, to date, we are private. Uh, we have uh, some uh, uh, private investors or angel investors as well as uh, venture capital. Uh, we've just completed um, our Series 4 uh, of financing, and then what we will be doing over the next year and a half is looking for partnerships and potentially uh, deciding if we're going to go public or not. Uh, we are happy to commercialize things, uh, but I think we are probably best as a uh, small company that develops innovative products and develops and does the clinical trials that are able to accelerate this drug for approval. Corey Carter, CEO of Epicentrics. Corey, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you very much. I really appreciate all the time you give us. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.